Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and today we're going to do a little bit of a recap episode, and I've also brought a special guest who you've heard from on our first episode, but without further ado, I'll also let him introduce himself before we dive into today's episode. Hi, everyone. It's Chris Winder back again. I'm really happy to get the opportunity to chat with Amanda about this subject. Thanks, Chris, for coming back onto the show. So we're about 10 episodes in almost, but we've had a variety of guests over the last nine episodes who've talked about everything from what they're working on, lessons learned. But then there's also been a ton of topics that have come up out of the conversations we've had that I think they're also really important, especially as we go through not only how to make a product successful into the market, but how do you get to that point as well? So one of the things I want to kind of focus in on today, especially because we've heard this on a few different episodes now, is transferable skills. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk from a lot of our, or a few of our guests now, who have talked about their path and entryway into the product marketing side of things or into product development. So I think it's super interesting that, you know, it's funny that we say in product marketing, it's one of those roles you don't go looking for. It's one you just kind of seek. And it feels like that holds true for other professions as well, including some of the folks that we've spoken to. What's your take on on some of the transferable skills and and things that you've heard our guests talk about so far? I think you're definitely pulling on the right thread there. I think there's a really interesting, particularly as IT is just a cyclic bunch of changes you know, everything old is new again and everything new is old again. I mean, that was a thread that came from two of the grizzled veterans you had on the show, Shane, Shane Harris and uh, George Goodall really kind of tapped into that one. And I think that idea is, is a really cool one. And I think it's one where there's a lot of meat on that bone. No, absolutely. I think it's also interesting, too. We had another guest, Zoran, who created Mint and Teddy. You know, he talked about his experience working on a cruise ship, which I thought was super interesting. You know, you start off in hospitality, but even just how to conduct conversations, having to speak to different people of different personalities, those are transferable skills that hold value throughout your entire career, which also benefits as product development sort of in a way too, because speaking to guests, he now knows how to interact with people, how to ask the right questions, and also how to get the answers he needs in order to develop a product, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really cool part of it. I mean, look at yourself and and me. I mean, I have my PhD in genetics and neuroscience. Who thought that would be a useful skill for marketing or anything else? I mean, I think sometimes we make too much of aligning your skill development with your 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 organization's development. I mean, there's always a good idea to cross cross train. I think I think sometimes we get so caught up in keeping the day to day skills that we forget about the big picture skills. Absolutely. I mean, if you had asked me 15 years ago what I thought I'd be doing today, I honestly thought my life would have been very different. But, you know, to your point, you've got a PhD degree and I started off with, you know, my diploma in public relations, did it for a couple of years and then ended up in tech. So it just goes to show that, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned when it comes to your career. And one thing I wish that my teachers had kind of focused on was those transferable skills. I think School just gets you through the door and kind of gets you your first steps in. But what they don't tell you is that your career will change in shape over time. I mean, marketing as a profession itself was just marketing. Now, 
you really have to go through each discipline of marketing to find out what you like. I know I don't love brand marketing. It's not my core focus. It's not my favorite part of it. But had I not gone through all the various different departments through demand gen, you know, brand, communications, et cetera, I would have never found the right fit for me. Yeah. And I think even to the point where we talk about this in in our conversations, how do you decide what you want to do? And how do you make that work within a company, right? You're not always going to be looking for a different company. And I think one of the things that, you know, harkening back to what George had said around the voodoo, the voodoo systems and how the skill set that you use to design that system is probably the skill set you need to manage that system. But if you don't really ever get the opportunity to to do it, it's really hard. I call it the baby bird problem. There comes a point where you got to test the wings. You got to push the bird out of the nest a little bit. And neither one of you is going to be comfortable. You know, as I've mentored people in four different job roles now, it's never nice to watch, to lean over the nest and watch them kind of, kind of fall a little bit, but you got to hope they'll, they'll open the wings. Yeah. Can we also say too, that even like product developers, yeah. you know, they, they really are, you know, a product of change as well, because if you get too comfortable, that's not going to help you. And I think that's been a common thread that's come through a lot of our conversations as well. No one wants to be too comfortable in the role. No one wants to be too comfortable in the position. Hence why people also tend to push themselves in different ways, which can be very true of all of our guests so far. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that caught me a little bit by surprise was, you know, you when you were talking to, to Scott about his his new direction was how much he was trying to keep it separated. And as an entrepreneur, how it was important to keep, you know, the the lines of sight clear. I thought that was a really interesting, kind of the opposite of what I would have intuitively thought. I don't know what you were thinking when you, you talked about it, to him about that. Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit surprised too, because I thought they would have lent themselves a little bit better hand in hand, seeing that he was developing a product that came as a result of his needs from his own customers. It is a little bit interesting as well, because I think developing a product kind of opens your eyes to more things because I can understand, obviously, your customers, you know what they're going to ask for, the typical services you provide, but then translating that into product, do you only want to focus on that? So I can kind of understand why he did that transition and shift as well, because you're not just building a product that you hope only your customers will utilize. You need everyone to utilize it. So I can kind of see that. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I, I, as we look at a lot of the bigger picture stuff and you start talk to product creators in other fields, I think there's a really interesting set, set of threads on kind of, you know, the difference between the burn the boats mentality of there's no going back. And, and if I have this over here, I'm real comfortable and I can make the changes. I don't, what were some of your thoughts on, on some of the things you heard about that, that kind of difference in, in product makers? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been very interesting speaking to all the various product makers. You know, you had someone like Jonathan, for example, who has no idea what to do, where to get started, how to even get started. So it was kind of refreshing to hear a very fresh take on that being, you know, that fresh baby bird trying out the wings a couple of times. (laughs) And as much as I feel for him too, the pandemic is one thing that we could not predict that also, you know, put a damper on his plans versus someone who's a little bit more of a veteran, like, George, for example, although he speaks to customers day in, day out, you know, the insights he brought from analysis and years and years of analysis of working with product changes, new products being brought into the market, adopting to it, 
you know, one of the things that I love that he talked about specifically was the anthropologist, the sociologist, yeah. and the psychologist. That to me was some golden advice because yeah. as we had spoken about on the show, you know, to be a really good, anyone could be a product designer these days. I mean, yeah. I'm even using Chad GPT to go design mobile apps at the speed of lightning these days. I did one that this morning, one of those this morning. There you go. So now we're all capable of doing these things. The difference between just creating something and making it exceptionally good, though, yeah. goes back to George's point. How do you also bring in that human element? It's not just, okay, here's this thing, click on it, interact with it. It's also got to help the human to complete their tasks. Yes. So, you know, we could use the jobs to be done framework. That's one way of doing it. There's the other piece that George spoke to where, especially if you are the CTO of an organization, how are you ensuring that it's not just, let's just build a product. Let's build a product that also solves the problem that we're trying to solve for. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think if you meld some of the three P's that, that Shane was talking about with some of that advice around one of the things that George said that struck me from my consulting days was really around what if we could only do this on paper, which is great advice. What if we only had one way to do this? What would you do? Well, I'd do it this way. Okay. Well, how do we take that? And now you, you, you meld that with like the three P's. All of a sudden, you have a framework for developing a usable product that has, that has a business sense to it. And I think, I think there's some really interesting things and insights that came out of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Shane's three P's was extremely interesting as well because we talked about, you know, product prioritization. We talked about technology debt. We talked about quite a few things that can also impact how you develop, which was also super interesting, which uh, I had a very interesting side conversation with someone. As we know, a lot of people are being laid off in the industry. And one thing that's still prevalent that no one has quite solved in that space yet is anonymizing resumes to make it fair game. Yeah. And, you know, it boggles my mind. Like, of course, in the back end, all the metadata is there around who the person or the individual is. But when we're talking about newer strategies, and this is where some of George's advice kind of comes into play too, if we're going to be the sociologist and the anthropologist, we have X amount of studies that exist today that talk about how unfair the hiring process is for minority groups, whether you are of color whether you are of as a, you know, the LGBTQ community, et cetera. You know, when I'm applying for a job, I'm hoping that I'm a good fit for it. I'm hoping that I'm not going to be discriminated based off my name, my race, my religion, et cetera. So why not take that aspect into development? And yet today we have all these various HR software programs that allow you to upload a resume, but we're still doing exactly what we did in the 80s, which is analyzing the same paper resume <laughs> in a digital format. So it's not helping or solving any of the issues. Yeah, I think one of the things, and it actually is a conversation I used to have a lot with customers and, and the conversation you had with George kind of triggered it. It's the idea of digital transformation versus digital replication. Replication is really cheap upfront, but it brings you no value. And so, but it was really cheap to do. So we just did it, right? PDFs. I'll make a PDF holding system and that'll be my really cool digital transformation. Versus if you went back and you said, if I'm building a house from scratch, how would I build the house? You know, very akin to George's comment around, if I only had paper, how would I do it? I usually use the plumbing conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think, yeah, people, it also, this is one of those weird 
areas where, where maybe we don't go too deep, but it really depends who builds the software, Amanda. Yeah, that too. The problem for them or not is going to be whether they build it in or not. <laughs> well, that too. But to your point as well, even though someone's building it, you're not always building things by yourself. And if you are, I mean, you're probably one of those few people that are, you know, from the ground up. But for a lot of organizations, let's take Workday, for example. You're telling me the folks at Workday have not thought of this. Then, to George's point, as CTO, you really need to play that anthropologist, sociologist, and psychologist role. Yeah. You are aware of the trends in the market. You are aware of what people care about. That needs to trickle down into the design element. And I know there's a lot of talk these days around design justice, which is basically making sure and ensuring that products that are being designed also incorporate a, like an unbiased opinion when it comes to minority groups. So how do you also bring in design justice into your design elements as well? Yeah. And sometimes I think that goes back to the technical debt, right? If you built the prototype and it wasn't part of the prototype, what's the delta between, you know, your time to market with what you have as a prototype and building back some of those, those new features? Your roadmap, is your date of launch going to change? Mm-hmm. And is it, do you have the V, if you're a smaller company, do you have the VC backing that will back you? to move that release date to be on trend, you know, or does everybody go, oh, that we'll do that in V1.5. We all know half the time something more, there's a better shiny little object that you, that gets in front of your face than that one from, that was really cool six months ago. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, no one ever wants a delay in the roadmap. So we'll just have to make it V2.16, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> that's where it gets thrown. But One other thing that's been coming up in every conversation and the one that I think everyone's either loves it or hates it, AI. How are you feeling about AI conversations these days? Because these days my head is about to spin. I'll tell you a story. (laughs) So, you know, as I hinted a minute ago, I, I finally broke down and tried it. So for myself, if you'd asked me yesterday my thinking on this, I would have been like, eh. This is just another shiny object that distracts us from, in our space, the B2B space, from actually figuring out what a human needs from a machine to do their job better. Like, that's always my, I hang my hat on moment. Mm -hmm. I have been fooling around with this idea of how would you collate scientific data from existing knowledge for three years? I am not a developer. I have banged away, I have cried, I have nearly thrown computers against the wall because I just couldn't figure it out. In 15 minutes this morning, I built a whole application that does it. So that's a real value. And so it works. I mean, there's legitimate meat on that bone. And so the idea of what that brings to the the story, now, does that fit an enterprise B2B process? Absolutely not. But I just rapid prototype something that I can now go to if this is meant for an enterprise space, again, going back to the idea of how you bring something to market and recruit a real developer because I can show them exactly what I needed to do. And they can see enough code that they go, okay, we need to put this here and that there and we do this. So, you know, the two sides of that argument, one is I love it for rapid prototyping. Do I think it's going to replace true B2B software for enterprises and regulated companies, not for a few years, because 
you know, similar to what you talked about with, with Scott, you know, these, it's pretty much a replicative system. It's not an intuitive and, and innovative system at the moment. Maybe that changes in a few years. No, absolutely. I think AI is very B2C focused at this hour, I would say. From the B2B perspective, I agree. I think it's, you know, there's a lot that still needs to be thought about and figured out for. However, are there ways that we can utilize AI in the B2B space? Absolutely. From onboarding, I can see how that gets, you know, makes lives easier. Ingesting, I mean, look at it. We're taking LMS systems and doing exactly, and, you know, Scott and I had talked a little bit about this too. You get an LMS system, and even George, we spoke about LMS systems as well. Yeah. We talked about taking existing documentation and then making it work in another system. If all you want to do is bubble up the existing documents, well, AI could automatically bubble up those documents for a new hire. There's no need for an LMS system. Now, where the LMS gets interesting is because it does what AI can't really do, which is build in some of that human element, which is the teachings. How can I teach someone how to do this? Instead of reading through documents and sending them a ton of things and being like, here, go learn, the LMS allows you to do things a little bit differently. Are there other ways AI can also help B2B? Of course there are. It's just, there's a lot of things that have to be thought about before we jump into AI and be like, this is going to solve all of our problems. Yeah, I think it's always that problem with marketing, the darn marketing people. (laughs) I'm exhausted already about chat GPT. Like if I can't read another article on it, I can't see another tweet. I can't hear about another magic cat box about it. I'm kind of just done with it. And we haven't even started yet. And you're already exhausted of the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of feel I said this on the call with George, and I still feel like it's true. Tech really has become the new fad that we all care about. You know, think about Pokemon Go. 2016, it was the big craze. We're all running down streets with an AR enabled, you know, phone now that can do it in the wild. Great. Not all of us. I was the old man on the corner saying, get off my yard. (laughs) (laughs) I was the one running. I will not lie. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat that one. However, we saw it was a fad. Everyone was like, oh my God, it's so unsafe. The media was talking about how people were not, you know, busy staring at their screens and getting hit by cars. And it was like, okay, great. We're doing it again with AI. The media has gotten way too involved and has taken the context of what AI and has blown it out of proportion. And as marketers, even though we try to control as much of this messaging as we can, the media is blowing this up into something that is just scary now. And all it's doing is fear-mongering the possibilities. Do you think it's the marketing, the marketing and PR groups behind some of the, the larger backers of, of these new technologies? There's a lot of influencer money floating around. I don't want to, I'm not going to grab my tinfoil hat, but <laughs> if you look at some of the stories there, it's the exact same story told by two diff- two or three different media groups. And to me, that's kind of the, the red flag that this is, you know, VC trying to create a market rather than letting a market growing organically. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of different things that we could focus on. I think one, the misunderstanding of what AI is, from a, you know, B2B to B2C sort of aspect, there's mis- there's a big misconception there. There's also the fact that we're honing in on one tiny piece of AI yeah. 
that people don't quite understand can or cannot impact certain things. Like I've had people ask me, do you think AI is going to go write my exam for me? No. Why? Why would it do that? Or there's just some really far-fetched ideas of what AI is capable of doing. Yeah. That it just makes me want to put my head into a, the sand and never come back out. And part of it is, is just that fear-mongering from the media. As for the VCs, the reason why we all love AI is the possibilities that it opens for development and for technology itself, which we all know the benefits of it. We all see the value in it. But once again, we understand it. It's not being, that story is not being communicated to the masses. I think those that have to work with the AI technology and have to program it, they understand what it is. That part of it is so not being communicated. As for the influencer piece, I think it's just one of those things where, again, it's a fad. It's like, of course, we all love AR, VR. We're all going to go run with it. It's like smartwatches came out. Let's all run with it. AI is the new thing. Let's all run with it. I don't even, I can't even think right now what's going to be the next big thing that we're all going to go chasing down, whether it's going to be holographic, interactive, I don't know, interactive things that we could do. They're already kind of hinting at those. So there's, (laughs) I can't remember who it was, but there's basically a replacement for video cameras. It might have been Google, where basically you can just talk and you don't even have to necessarily be there. There's a full-size avatar that's, that's real time. And I saw a demo of it and I, it was mildly scary because, and, and we've both done enough demos and created enough demos to know that the demo isn't what, what happens in the real world, but it was both horrifically overdrawn and accurately speaking, which to me is kind of that scary kind of, I don't like it moment. Yep. <laughs> so... No. And, you know, I also find it a little bit funny, too, that I believe it was yesterday or the day before the chief of chat GPT says that there should be governance around it, which is interesting because I've always said that there should be some level of governance. But there's also a little bit of a disconnect between the tech world and the rest of the world. Yeah, It's that ask for forgiveness later, don't ask permission model. And it's always been that way. We unleash the Internet. The internet had consequences that we're not prepared for, still not prepared for. Like, we know the internet's been around. You have internet scams that have been happening. Yeah. What are every, what's every country doing about that? So is the government the right person or body to actually govern this? I'm not sure. Should we be creating a new group to govern the internet and technology? Maybe, but it also has to be unbiased. So it cannot be the big tech giants all coming together being like, hey, we're going to govern all of this. There's got to be a third body that's involved that has everyone's best interests at heart. And that's something we still haven't seen today. I mean, going back to my comment too about internet scams, the only police network that actually gets has a cybersecurity team is in Korea. The only police network or department that has cybersecurity as a separate department and mm. cyber crimes built in. And they are digital forensic, like scientists almost, that go and look at digital crimes because it's huge. In Asia and all over, human trafficking is a big issue. So they actually have cyber teams that investigate leads on how people are luring kids into the human trafficking rings. And I, my mind was blown. You don't hear about those things in North America. I have not seen that level of interest. Unfortunately, I've been scammed here. And the best we've got here in Canada is file a police report and also make a report to the National Fraud Center. That's not going to help me 
me filing a report is for statistic purposes. What happens after? Yeah. What happens to anyone? There's nothing or no one or nobody out there that helps you with that. So I thought it was interesting that they proposed that was proposed by the uh, the chief of or of ChatGPT. Yeah, the problem with you know it's the who watches the watchers problem, right? Especially you have very powerful governments who who don't necessarily always agree, and you have huge tech multinationals who who can slap hands. So governance and regulation have always been you know that the sticky part, and I think it's always going to be. I think. There, you're always going to have that regionality to it. And I almost think you have to, if you want to keep it human now for something as big as multinational as human trafficking and those kind of things, which cross borders and are automatically internet based. I think, I think there's some real roles for the big multinational governance committees. But when we talk about something just as as amorphous as, as AI and chat GPT, there's so many groups. I mean, the writer's strike is was precipitated in part by the AI script writing that could happen. You know, who gets credit for that? How do you manage that? And and the tech the techies don't care. And because they're like, this is perfect. It's cheaper, faster, easier. But there's a human element to cheaper, faster, easier that they don't. It's not their job to care about, in their opinion. And it's where we keep running into these problems is, to your point, we put it out there, we get the result, we go, huh, well, that's not, I don't want that. Can we put this genie back in the bottle? And everybody's like, I'm, I already got a new scam for you. Nigeria is not even important anymore. I don't have to go to Nigeria to be, do a scam. <laughs> <laughs> but to throw it back to you, how do you also govern the internet, because I get from a regional standpoint why we might want some of that. But are we too late? Because we've already made the the internet's almost like a governless place that knows no country, no human, no bounds. You know, you're seeing, we're also seeing global, uh, globification kind of happen a little too quickly as well, where the internet, now that everyone had access to social media, well, I want this thing that's available in America. And now you're seeing brands that would have been contained in certain areas now being exposed. Or presence, for example, were able to shut down in Russia when things were going down with Ukraine. You saw all the brands pull out of there due to political yeah. unrest as well, due to backlash from the internet. So, how do we go back to governing this? I think that the whole governing the internet thing. I think I, I can't tell if it's not important or just too late. My brain's brain can't keep up with that. <laughs> but I do think you know this is one of those things where where it's kind of generational. Like I I have to older teenagers now they're pretty internet well not they're very internet savvy and i think one of the things that you're seeing is they use the internet completely differently like and my sister's 28 so i've got the spectrum right i have 13 17 28 and my old butt and (laughs) so we the you look at how they use the same you look at just instagram you look at how the four those people use instagram it's all different and some of it's actually more regional Another example is, I think some of that brand issue where we want brands from other countries. I think you're starting to see that backlash. You're starting to see. So it may be not, maybe that you don't necessarily need the regulation. Maybe it's just a matter of how do you create more regional taste? How do you surface regional taste? So if you're, and maybe again, this goes back to the idea of, of, of a product and how do you bring a product to market? 
do you want to go global or or is that regional part, you know, are you going to start to see more regional sites and things like that? Like even instead of .ca, you have .london or .gta. You know, are people going to want that that significant geolocation because they prefer local? Yeah. I mean, you already see a little bit of that. Hence why you have the www at the front, then the .ca at the end. But there's a really, really funny show. And if anyone's into comedy, highly recommend go watch it. It's called The Fix. They bring up social issues and comedians have to come up with clever or funny ways hmm. of mitigating said issue. The first episode, which kind of ties into this, was about social network addiction. And Team One basically gave the solution of having an internet license. So everybody had to have an internet license card. <laughs> you got to swipe the thing before you go online. And everything you do will also be listed as a transaction on the card. And I actually thought that could be a pretty smart solution. Isn't that basically Black Mirror? Yeah, maybe. I don't think they've actually done one on the internet so oh. per se. I know they had the social network episode, but I thought that was pretty funny. Yep. Now, the funny solution, if we wanted to stop social network addiction, was just slow down the internet. That yeah. would make people lose their minds. And I thought it was pretty funny. But they also talked about AI and how to stop that. And once again, their perspective of what AI was was pretty funny. They just went straight to the robot route and was like, let's just make robots horny. That'll solve our issue. And we're good. But it got me thinking, you know, how do we actually police the Internet or how do we do this? Because it is global. Yeah. Everybody can get on it. Everyone is using it. You know, we have IP addresses, which can tell you which house you are. But what if I have several devices all connected and maybe not the same individual user is using that, which is where we get into some of that, you know, cybersecurity forensics, which gets interesting. And that's something people don't think of either. A lot of your actions on the Internet can be traceable for the most part. Yeah, it's one of those there's areas that there's just not a good answer. You have there's a lot of powers that be in there. I mean, I mean, California has its own internet rules. Now, good news that they're pretty similar to GDPR. They're similar enough for most businesses that you can you can survive. But I mean, if you look at what's happening in some of the states, and then you look at what's happening in some of the the other countries, the internet is going to turn into a patchwork. I mean, there's sites that aren't available, and and this is we may have to censor this afterwards. But Pornhub. You know, there's a big, huge article. They've turned their services off in Utah because the Utah laws are ungovernable for them. So if they can turn it off in just Utah, you can be very regional if you want. Or you can turn it the other way and, and say, as a region, we don't want this kind of thing in our state. We, we've seen what the future looks like, and we'll see, we'll see if people get uh, are up in arms about it. <laughs> I think you're already seeing that, though. I mean, just recently this week, Pakistan had to take turn off the Internet because of undue unrest because their former prime minister was shot. You're yeah. seeing and this also, you know, when it comes to governance as well, you also have to think about the backlash. How many times in the last decade have we seen governments across the globe where there are protests due to some humanitarian issue where people are gathering in mass? because they can, they can easily access, create plans to meet up in person. Yeah. But then your protest gets the internet blocked for you. So, you know, <laughs> there's always backlash that's going to happen as well. But even so, it's kind of interesting because 
It's this thing that became available to everybody. And we're so used to it. Our lives revolve around the internet, whether you like it or not. So how do you govern that is truly difficult, especially when it's been a free-for-all space for as long as it has been. And really and truly, I can't tell you if GDPR or if California state law or any of the other ones out there really make an impact on me as a consumer or a day-to-day user. I think it's rules and governance. And we talked a little about this with George too. Governments are a little bit too late to understand technology. By the time they pass legislation, something new is already out there. So, you know, as an everyday person, GDPR doesn't really affect me. But for a business, there's a lot of imposing on B2B where it's like, you need this, this, and this in order to be compliant. But how does that translate to the everyday user? Doesn't really hold much weight for me. I don't see the effects. Yeah, I think that's probably a good thing, in my opinion. I mean, when we talk about who can affect change, right? It's going to be the developers. It's going to be the the businesses who have the money to create the next great product. The small entrepreneurs are not going, and the and the individuals creating some, you know, some fidget spinner for the internet are going to cause some eyes and ears to get open, but they're not necessarily going to change anything. And they're not going to change anything until they get involved with business. So when we talk about the regulatory environment, it really, I think it's a good thing that it doesn't affect your day-to-day life. Because could you imagine if if your form fill for to access your own inter- email account changed every week on the whim of some government in... <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing that some of these things take longer than don't work at the speed of the internet because I would lose my mind. Yeah, and you know what? That's a fair point. Like us working in tech, I think we realize how much work that entails. I think most people who just use the internet don't understand how much work that entails True. and how much these changes actually can impact. It's like something as minor as updating an opt-in, opt-out form can have repercussions. But people don't see that. They just want it to work. That's it. So what are you most excited about with AI? What are you hoping to see or where are you hoping to see AI be utilized? Because I've already said what I want. I think for me, I, I think now this tells you a lot about who I am. So I'm a big proponent of eat local and work local. Um, I try and hire local folks anytime I can. I try and shop at local places to the point where I'll go to the abattoir tomorrow, which is local to me. There's a role for the internet and particularly AI to understand where you are and understand what the people around you do and to serve you, you know, when you're looking at the Walmart shoes for the fifth time of saying, hey, there's a local shop that does this. I think there's a real strong role for AI to help us be better humans and work work with other humans. Take some of the nonsense away and focus on being a human and human interactions. That's my hope. Yeah. And you know what? We might even be seeing that if you've been paying attention to Google AI's little conversation and the way that they're going to be using BARD to bubble up results in the search engine optimization sector, I think we might be getting there. Yeah. How? That's the way to be seen. I would love to support local just like you, but we'll see. Like, If you can also tell me, if I'm looking for a specific pair of shoes, like you said, if Walmart has it in store versus it's going to take me three weeks to ship it from Amazon... That'd be good to know as well if they could bubble that information up. Yeah. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for your time and for coming back on the show. And I also just want to thank Open Text for sponsoring this podcast as well. So thank you, Open Text, and thank you, Chris. Great. Thanks, Amanda. 